0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Henry Ivory, the host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Anthony Reed about his book, Soundworks Race, Sound, and Poetry in Production. Professor Reed is a professor of English and the Norman L. and Rosalia Goldberg Professor of Fine Arts at Vanderbilt University and SoundWorks was published by Duke University Press in 2021. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Um,
2: Hi, thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Um, Yeah, and I guess to start off, I I would love it if you could introduce and tell us a bit about who you are.
2: Um, Thank you. So you've already said my um, title. I teach here at Vanderbilt, which is in Nashville, Tennessee. Where my primary area of um, specialty, as I understand it, is Black poetics. And poetics usually refers to um, analyzing cultural texts with an eye towards how they achieve the effects that they do. So we read a poem and we wonder, why do we know that that's a poem? We look at what's, what did the author do, what traditions did he or she draw on to um, make it read in the right way? I take an expansive view towards poetics in my work because I'm really interested in also how people make worlds together and how in particular um, black people and other oppressed people have managed to work things out with and for one another. Um, I would call that the central plank that really, or through line if you like, of my work to date.
1: Great. That's, that's so helpful and, and such a wonderful way to start this conversation, because it does feel like world building and and thinking um, about, about the world building capacity of, of the poetic uh, is is a central line, um, certainly of your, your two monographs. And, and by way to start, I'm wondering if you could maybe talk us through a little bit the ideas behind Soundworks and also how you wrote Soundworks coming from your first book, Freedom Time, The Poetics and Politics of Black Experimental Writing.
2: So Freedom Time grew out of my dissertation, which was just overstuffed with ideas. Um, and the idea I had there when I first started to get my head around, well, what is poetics? How can I use that? There were a few things that were happening. First, there my sense in canvassing kind of the literature on uh, experimental or avant-garde poetry was that wow, there doesn't seem to be much of a place for Black people in it. Or there's just this narrative of, well, language happened in the 80s, sort of sui generis, and then those people, when they decided that their work was done, nobly stood aside so that women and queer people and non-white people could have a turn also writing language poetry. I just thought that was insufficient. But I also thought that within Black cultural studies, the there wasn't a a kind of critical vocabulary for talking about some of this work that beyond um, an analysis of resistance. So identifying a norm or code, and then saying this text or this part of this text is resistant to this epistemological or or political framing. Um, So I really wrote the dissertation and then the book Freedom Time to try to think through that and to think through it in particular as something that was rooted in a particular historical conjuncture. For freedom time, that was the post-civil rights and post-decolonization moment um, in the Caribbean. And of course, referring to the, the formal granting of rights and the formal granting of sovereignty, understanding that those things are being undermined and that the people understood that what they were getting wasn't what they asked for in the moment. And thinking about how they produced literature Um, and in the dissertation, also music, to respond to that in order to um, plant the seeds towards a greater future freedom. As my dissertation became the book Freedom Time, I realized that it really needed to focus on print and print media, that there was just no way I could responsibly treat the the full range of things that I was interested in. So, I focused that book really um, a lot on typography on, I got, gave myself a little bit of an education in just the, in the world of print and page layout and how people are using fonts and typefaces and all kinds of things like that, images, um, poetic and pictorial images and wrote, wrote that book. But I was unsatisfied for two reasons. One, I really did want to write about music. I thought that there was an opening to really explore collaborations between poets and musicians. And I thought that Freedom Time left under-examined. What was the civil rights era? What was the era of decolonization? In short, what was the 60s for Black people? That's how the genesis of song works was in trying to answer that. And the 60s became the long Black arts era starting in the late 1950s when people in the United States and in South Africa started talking about Black consciousness. And Black consciousness is something that would imbue and permeate and be palpable in the music. This also turns out to be the era, the era of stereo Um, And here I just want to give a shout out to Titi Elajaji's Africa in Stereo and the ways that she taught us to think about stereo and the uh, etymological roots in um, solidarity. Um, And so you get in that book, starting in the late 50s, Langston Hughes collaborating with Charles Mingus and all of these musicians and poets who are like-minded and maybe have some aesthetic overlap coming together to try to figure out how to make art together, and through making art together, how to make other worlds possible for one another that they hoped would radiate out into the world. Finally, the the other thing that Soundworks emerged was in wanting, to, I wanted to think about, because I, as a critic, I, I tend to think historically, and it occurred to me that the very concepts I had for thinking about sound, that I had developed from people like C.C. Um, Jaji, like Fred Moten, like Alexander Wellier and others, that those had their origins in the era that I was studying. And so I wanted to make the simple but I think important point that part of what those poets and musicians and critics, as I started to think about the importance of building, um, of, of building independent media, and independent networks of critics alongside the arts. They were creating the concepts of sound that then they were testing out. So there was a a wonderful feedback loop that I think is important and whose origins can tend to be obscured when we now think nothing of saying, oh, that multiphonic saxophone sound is a scream. We think that because that's an idea that's been very well prepared for us, and in some instances, it might obscure the very thing that we're trying to think about, especially there are gestures and song works of looking at more contemporary work where some of those concepts don't hold in the same way, and there's a need to um, rethink those historically as well.
1: Great. That's a, a wonderful trajectory to trace between between those two books and and some really really interesting questions. Um, just thinking a little bit about about the way you frame sound works. Um, there's there's a lot of key terms I think that 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 really come out at, at the outset. And I'm and I'm wondering maybe as as a way to start uh, talking about the structure of the book, if if you might want to to. Speak to some of those. I'm thinking here, particularly of of black sound or, or phono poem. These these key terms that 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 you keep coming back to, particularly um, in in that introduction.
2: Sure. Um, so, phonopoem poem was the term. I needed a poem to talk about these recordings. I wanted to foreground recordings, and because I wanted to keep questions of the media. For, um, sens- central in the discussion of the sound, and to say that we can't think the sound separate from the media in which it's presented. And so, final poem is a term for specifically the recording, the recorded collaborations between poets and musicians. And through that, wanting to um, foreground the space of the recording studio, the labor of of producing the sound the actual work in the instance of jane cortez of figuring out how do you sit in a room with a bunch of musicians and have your your poem be audible how was the space of the recording studio remade in order to accommodate these new concepts of sound over and against the emergence of stereo things like isolating um, performers like changing microphones and all kinds of things that we tend not to think so much about as people who just want to listen to the music. And even as critics, I wanted to bring those to the fore. And so Final Poem was a way of talking about the record as a particular way of publishing and producing and thinking about poetry. As it turns out, um, this this was important to me because in many instances, it turns out that the recording is the first publication of the poem. Mary Baraka's Black Art first appears on record and then appears in print. Some of Jane Cortez's poetry, to mention her again, first appears in her recordings on her own record label and then uh, appears in print. And, and it just gave a way of one, limiting the range of what I could talk of what I felt responsible for, because the sheer number of collaborations I started to discover was overwhelming people going into places in the village, um, in New York, or into different sites in Oakland, in Los Angeles, and elsewhere. Um, In Chicago, there was such a rich history there that I didn't think I could do justice to all of that. I didn't think I could do justice to performance per se. I did think I could make some headway with recording. And final poem was a way of me, to be really honest, disciplining myself so that I didn't go down too many rabbit holes. Black sound um, is the term that I came up with to talk about particular sound practices as not just as the sounds that Black people have made, but that would also encompass the concepts that go along with them that they also created. It's a distinction that I got via Louis Althusser by way of Hortense Spillers, to distinguish the real object from the object of knowledge and to say that the recording, the final poem, encodes both. It's both what what happened in front of the microphone that's forever preserved in some fashion on whatever recording medium, whether it's the um, tape or later um, digital hard drives, so there's that, but there's also a sense that that sound is already worked on by recording engineers, by the musicians and poetics themselves, poets, excuse me, themselves, and by the critics. So that in a sense we're prepared to receive them. We know what they are, and that that needed to be part of our analysis of what is this sound doing, so that we could say, sure, black sound is eruptive, is disruptive, and all the things we could kind of make a. Champion it in the ways that I think are right, but also maintain a certain degree of critical perspective to say, we think this because there's a reason that we think this. It's not and that doesn't inhere in the sound itself, but also inheres in the world in which the sound circulates, and trying to create a critical apparatus that could remain sensitive to that. Was why I wanted the term "Black Sound" just to mark it as something that was, as the subtitle says, in production. That's
1: that's wonderful, and and I think that that you know, correct me please if I'm if I'm wrong here, but but part of of that gesture, and this seems to really tie into the first chapter of the book, is is in making a very historicist argument and and tracing out this this longer history, and I'm wondering if maybe you could walk us through what you saw as, as the lineage that that, that led up to um, sound work, the critical lineage that is.
2: In the, in the book, I offer um, a genealogy that starts with a simple question, which is how did black thinkers situate um, sound? And I started with Frederick Douglass and the famous moment in the 1845 narrative when he talks about the difference between experiencing the sounds of the enslaved while within the circle and then learning what they are when outside the circle. That's his his metaphor, which wonderfully calls to mind the record, which I'm going to flub the data on this, but I think it's about 25 years later that the gramophone is fully invented and starting to be used. So it's as though Douglas is anticipating through his metaphor the form that the recording itself would take. From there, I, that that kind of movement of inside and outside, of what is the perspective of the listener and the critic, um, I just did my best to trace it and to trace how it comes, to how these particular sound practices come to be are thought to be embodied in particular communities, how they're thought to be reflective of and shaping of forms of communal life. So because it was a sketch, I jumped ahead from from Douglas to W.E.B. Du Bois who talks about the the wild sounds and makes a traditional nationalist argument that these sounds were the only true Ameri- These sounds and some of the Native American songs and stories were the only true American sounds that were. Everything else was kind of European holdover, which is very much part of that late 19th century "What is American about the United States? What is distinctly American?" kind of argument that I see as really taking what Douglas had done and raising the raising the stakes in order to make the case that actually this population that you've said is outside is intimate to the most interior part of this thing that you're calling a country. Um, and there are people who are who get skipped over in that, like Anna Julia Cooper I could have spent some time on, but I really wanted to keep it at, at the level of a sketch. The next person in the genealogy that I do trace is Zora Neale Hurston talking about the um, spirituals, and neo-spirituals. The background there is groups like the um, the Fisk Jubilee Singer, who are the reason that Nashville is Music City. Queen Victoria heard them and said, oh, you must be from a music city. And so it is. Um, they had taken the spirituals and combined those with conventional sound techniques. They did a a very conventional modernist thing. They took these folk practices, so-called, the practices of people who are supposedly unlettered, the practices that for Hurston, the kind of jagged harmonies and spontaneous arrangements, they took them, refined them in the language of modernism into things that played with and against um, received musical conventions and traveled the world with them. This was commonly done, and it was commonly done also on record, even moving into the 20th century. People like Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson similarly reset the spirituals as concert music. Hurston objected to this and thought, nope, you need to actually, you need to actually go to the church, you need to go to the field to the juke joint and hear these things where they're supposed to be heard. This thing that you're hearing is just an imitation, And that was really the beginning of shifting the argument of authenticity that somebody like Douglas or Du Bois would have made into saying that these are specific to communities and communal practice. That, I think, is the idea that then is waiting to be picked up in things like soul jazz when after Bebop Anybody with the record, anybody could learn bebop. Anybody could sit down with Charlie Parker records and figure out. I mean, not anybody, but a talented and dedicated musician could figure out how to play the Charlie Parker licks off the record. Then show up at the at the jam session and do a facsimile of Charlie Parker. Soul jazz became a moment of saying, okay. I see you're stealing all of our licks off the record. Well, we're going to add a little bit more gospel into this. We're going to add some um, real gut bucket blues into this. And we're going to add some things that you have to have grown up steeped in this tradition to get. And you're not going to be able to steal that from us. That becomes the idea that then gets refined and developed and insisted upon by people like Amiri Baraka, um, then Leroy Jones and blues people or by some of the other musicians associated with the so-called new thing or so-called free jazz, like Archie Shepp and Ornette or Coleman, and even Cecil Taylor, who um, in reverse, I think it's A.B. Spellman says that Cecil Taylor is doing Bartok in reverse. So instead of refining the folk songs um, into European concert music, making refiltering European concert music ideas And concepts through gospel and through the blues and through rhythm and blues. Cecil Taylor claims that's what he did, and it actually sounds like that is what he did, to my ear. Um, So that's the that's the, the a sketch of the arc of the development of these sounds and how did the sounds come to be marked as black, which sounds are marked as black, and as the record made it possible to, in the sociological sense, appropriate these sounds and make them something that could be studied, that could be traded and kind of learned, how did people shift their idea of what counted as the real sound in order to continue to make something for themselves that? As Ron Wilburn um, said in one of the essays in Addison Gale's um, The Black Aesthetic Volume, this music is central to our survival. So in order for it to be available for our survival in Wilburn's terms, it needed to be distinct. They needed to argue for it as distinct and kind of continually reproduce an idea of Black sound that could not be could hardly be appropriated and certainly could in that sociological sense made into an object of knowledge. And that if um, other musicians did try to do these things, they would fail because there was such a, a level of um, micro technique and micro timing that simply couldn't be um, couldn't be learned. It can only be something that a person was absorbed in.
1: Great. That's, that's wonderful. And, and um, you know, it, it's, you're, you're gesturing here towards, I think, in a really wonderful way, what, what strikes me as at, at the heart of, of the chapter on, on Langston Hughes and Charles Mingus, which is this idea of, of the Black Commons and black, and black communism. And I'm wondering if you could, could talk us through these ideas uh, and the way that Mingus and, and Hughes are working together, too.
2: Yeah, um, this is a, it's really an interesting st- story. So first I'll say I refer to a communist inf- inflected imaginary inspired by Richard Eaton, who in talking about the post-civil rights world, Richard Aiton was a political scientist who has a book, In Search of the Black Fantastic, thinking about the relationship between popular culture and politics. And he talks about an anarchist-inflected imaginary, by which he means a sense that ordinary people, like everyday people, already have a critique in their communities of the limits of sovereignty, the limits of the liberal state. And they're already kind of operating and living their lives in such a way that they're not deceived about what's, what's going on, so that they might insist on and take advantage of things like the features of the welfare state, for example, um, or they might push for electing Black mayors and Black leadership, but they also understand the limits of that in their life. I wanted to take it a step further and say that I I think you can also find something that is lowercase c communist inflected, that's not just resistant, averse, kind of evading the, um, the state, but also is concerned with property and the forms of life that are necessary to sustain the, um, a capitalist regime. Um, they're, they're concerned not just with, you know, anti-respectability politics to somewhat have it, but with the whole project of social hygiene, um, of making people into good workers. It's out of that idea that I reread Langston Hughes and Charles Mingus Both of whom throughout their long careers were really interested in those that Hughes called the low down folks, just ordinary people, people who would never be good representatives of the race. And part of what I wanted to do was to rethink the collection Montage of a Dream Deferred, which I have to say, I was surprised people maligned it. I read Montage of a Dream Deferred, and I thought, this is terrific. This is outstanding. Wow. And then I started to dig into the reviews, and I was very surprised to see, wow, people really didn't like this. And even his biographer, Arnold Ramper, said, was kind of lukewarm on it. But I think it's really him coming out of his experience of the popular front, his experience working in and around official communist um Organizations, he never himself declared himself a communist, although we know he had to go before Joseph McCarthy's committee and formally denounce communism. Um, I, I wanted to think about how this poem, this collection, and then this collaboration didn't just mark a turn to investment in the civil rights movement, as it came to be called, but was still invested in what had previously been called the Black Freedom Movement, which was global, which had at its center, this was before Lumumba's assassination, but Hughes would write about Lumumba um, after his collaboration with Mingus. I wanted to try to situate that and to think about what is, what is it to valorize these people, the, the lowdown, as he calls it, the lowdown dwellers of Harlem. The people for whom Harlem maybe is the world, but the world itself is so suffused with migration from elsewhere in the in the United States and throughout the Black world. Mingus, likewise, we know that he had a vexed relationship to questions of authenticity. He himself would lob charges at pianist Dave Brubeck and others that they didn't swing. But then, people like um, Miles Davis said that. I want to try to quote it correctly, but this is going to end up being a paraphrase that Mingus's music sounded like a sad oil painting. Mingus was really hurt by these things, which were basically questioning the the racial authenticity of the music, its rootedness in the community. And so when Nesli Ertugun approached, who's the producer at Atlantic, an executive at Atlantic Records, approached Mingus and said, you need to just make a record that really swings. You need to make a record that's rooted in Um, in the culture in a different way, Mingus responded by making Blues and Roots, which very much went to the Holiness Church, the Pentecostal churches of Watts, where he had grown up, and incorporated those elements into his music from then on. It's right at that moment that these two people come together. Hughes coming off of Montage of a Dream Deferred and the rejection um, from the a Black critical establishment of Montage of the Dream Deferred, and the sense from many cor- corners that Hughes is in the downward trajectory of his career, and Mingus is kind of hitting this um, moment of ascendancy after the death of Charlie Parker in that vacuum created um, with what was going to happen with bebop and the many, many, many competing strands of what was this music, so called jazz, going to become. So poetics of black communism was a way of saying they have the this investment in the people who had theretofore been called the folk. They have this critique of, of mainstream respectability. They have this critique of the kind of, of bourgeois norms of society that I think went into the sense that we're creating things from the community in order to give them back to the community this sense of, yes, they made records, they signed their names to it, they got royalties. And I was very careful not to say that they are just communists because neither one of them declared communism as their ideology. And that's why I kept it lowercase c. But in that sense of trying to imagine and build a to world towards a world that is not entirely shaped by a liberal imaginary, that to me seemed like the, the best term to capture the world that they, the larger world that they were in and had come out of.
0: That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
1: That's great. Um and we've already we've already heard his name a, a, a couple times here, but, but chapter three of the book is really focused on on Baraka. And I'm and I'm curious about what his role in this project for you was and sort of his what feels like a real centrality to to this thinking uh
2: in general. And Mary Baraka. Um, I wanted to have a chapter on him in Freedom Time, because for me, thinking about Black experimental writing, it's not that people weren't experimental before him or after him, but he does direct so much of the conversation around Black poetry and Black poetics at mid-20th century. He's, there's just no getting around him. So in that sense, he had to be in this book. But it's also the case that starting with blues people which it occurs to me now this is the 60 year anniversary of that book it was published in 63 um, which was the first monograph by a black writer about jazz and there too everyone since has been writing either inspired by that book or um, positively or negatively, you have people like Ralph Ellison who would claim that blues people would quote even give the blues to blues, and others who take up that work and just embrace it all wholesale. Especially in the contemporary, the idea that um, as one of the chapters of blues people would have it, the Negro can never be an American, which is the the point of contention between um, Baraka and Ellison. So. Baraka's career is also a case study for me of, of other things. He creates the concepts by which we think the music. Then he goes into the recording studio with the very musicians he had been championing in the pages of Downbeat magazine. Um, when the people of Downbeat magazine started to chafe against his racial politics, um, he took the energy he had already been putting into creating independent so-called small magazines of poetry and started creating his own independent publications to to get people together to talk about the music in addition to creating record labels so he's really a key figure for the process of um, black sound work as the book defines it he's also key because he's active He's, he's active before, how do I wanna say this? He's active in the music before the black arts era. He um, defines himself as a cultural nationalist during the black arts era. And by mid seventies, he's abandoned that and really been harshly critical of it and become what he would call a third world Marxist um, for the rest of his career. And he just keeps going. And so he became a figure for me one of a few places where the book was able to reflect on people who live a long life who start in the black arts era and then continue so charles mingus does that although he starts before the black arts era he starts in the bebop era but archie shepp becomes prominent during the black arts era um amiri baraka does cecil taylor does jane cortez does Um, i wanted to really think about how does he navigate these changes? How does he continue to pursue independent media and create independent media? How does he continue to reshape and reshape our ideas of sound? And how can we then think about his art in a way that is not static? It's not that he produces one idea and blues people and then he keeps doing that, but um, he produces blues people, then he produces, um, publishes black music, which collects a lot of his writing from Downbeat and elsewhere. Then in the 1980s, he, he and Amina Baraka, who was then his wife, published a book called The Music. And towards the end of his life, he publishes another book whose title is escaping me right now. Um, and these are distinct phases. And I think they respond to different historical phases of his career. And the through line there is, he maintains an interest in not just the radical but like Hughes and Mingus, he's interested in the very popular entertainment that's maybe uncomfortable, including minstrel or minstrel adjacent figures like Mantan Moreland, and wanting to kind of trace how does, I mean, that became the through line to say, if he's against bourgeois art, that doesn't mean that he's in favor strictly of a kind of uh, rarefied modernism. He's also interested in the very, very popular And in fact, his critique of modernism in Blues People um, comes down, this is a moment when he's critical of the first independent black record label, Black Swan, um, who really wanted to promote a a so-called refined sense of the culture. And he says acerbically, as was his way, that it turns out the working people didn't so much care about refinement. They wanted, give me a pigfoot and a bottle of beer. And so thinking about those parts of his career, I think gives us a way to rethink the arc of his career without hemming ourselves into the, um, his own periodization, the Beat period, the Cultural Nationalist period, the Third World Marxist period. Sure, those are distinct, but they also, for me, uncomfortably overlap. Like his, his version of communism maintain some of what was important to him about the cultural nationalist period is just that he has a more pronounced and explicit class critique which isn't a new thing but a return to what was already there in blues people and that was there in the cultural nationalist period so that was how he figured he's kind of one of those people who just lives a long time and really brings a lot of things into focus about moving into and out of the black arts era
1: that's great. Um, and the fourth chapter is a really interesting one because I feel like you you offer one of the extended um, meditations and, and, and ruminations on, on what another key term of the book is that we that we haven't touched on, which is which is improvisation. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk us through that and perhaps the structure of that that fourth chapter as well.
2: The fourth chapter is a little bit of a departure in that the first three chapters are very um, historical in their orientation. And the fourth chapter I felt had to, needed to be a, more of a theoretical chapter. The center of it is Cecil Taylor, who begins his career in the 50s and is active until um, the early 2010s when he passes away, and Gene Lee. And one of the things that Jean Lee, the tremendously, prodigiously talented vocalist and composer who's associated equally with the um, European avant-garde and the um, what what Wadada Leo Smith would call creative music, what struck me was that with Jean Lee, she's was a tremendous and unusual vocalist and just created these sounds with her body that drew for, in my mind, drew attention to her body, drew attention to how is she doing That's what I mean. Just you would try to reproduce. I would try to reproduce these sounds and think, I don't, I have no idea how she did that with her throat. And with Cecil Taylor, I wanted to write about him because I felt, um, his poetry, just apart from the album he does, this unaccompanied or where he reads his, he recites his poetry accompanied by himself on hand percussion, that all the recordings of his poetry that he did with music, whether with his piano or with his ensembles was, there was just not a lot of conversation on it. So in part, I wanted to just bring it forward. Like we should be paying attention to this But the other thing that's remarkable about Cecil Taylor is that almost all of the criticism talks about the sheer physicality of his playing. That this was a person who was, I mean, famous for his endurance. He could play these incredibly challenging and technically demanding performances and could play pianos until they're out of tune. There's a story of him going, showing up at the five spot and playing the piano with such force that the hammers of the piano started popping out of. I mean, he broke the piano um, and they did not invite him back. (laughs) Um, I love that story, but I wanted to kind of think about that. Well, what is that legend? And how does that kind of way of thinking about embodiment maybe give us some ways to make good on the thinking that emerges out of Hughes and Mingus, if they're trying to give us other versions of the subject and Mary Baraka is being critical of certain modes of of subjectivity and what bourgeois normativity, then here's a place where just in the sheer ways that they're asking, these musicians are asking us to think about um, embodiment, both thematically and alongside the poem, that there was just a way to raise and motivate some of those questions and maybe to think about improvisation not just as free or deviation from the norm, but as play, as really working and reworking established concepts to really move towards something else that maybe we, one reason that Taylor in particular continues to be difficult for people is we really don't have a vocabulary for him. You can listen to him and say, "Oh, the roots of this are the Second Viennese School," and you know that he went to the New England Conservatory of, of Music, and you know it kind of seems like case closed. But then he says things like, "I was really interested in Dave Brubeck until I heard Horace Silver, and once I heard Horace Silver, that was my end. That was the end of my involvement with all of that." And you listen to Horace Silver, and Horace Silver was a genius of playing one one note melodies, these kinds of single line beautiful pop-adjacent tunes that... I mean, his solos are remarkable, and they're remarkable for their constraint. He deserves to be in that conversation with Miles Davis and Ahmad Jamal of people who really use space, which is the last thing that I associate with Cecil Taylor. It's all kind of frenetic, and you watch him play, and he's like a dancer on the music stand. And so as I started to think about that aspect... The aspect of his playing, this like dance, the aspect that he claims is rooted in Horace Silver, who's an important soul jazz pioneer and hard bop pioneer. Um, and then what, even the ways that his recitation of his poetry draws attention to um, the Bartesian grain of his voice in a way that that's why I aligned him with Gene Lee, that there's something about what they're even doing at the level of um, enunciation that I thought would really... I hope, open up some avenues for rethinking what kind of thing improvisation is, but also just the sheer toll it takes on um, on bodies. We like to champion John Coltrane. And after, after Coltrane died, someone wrote a poem that John Coltrane's music kill him. And when I studied saxophone, just to try to understand what is it to create music not as a drummer which i had trained as but as a wind player who has to use my mouth and my teeth and lips in a different way stuff is incredibly taxing so the question did john coltrane's music kill him i mean the answer in a certain sense is no he died of liver cancer but in another sense maybe (laughs) who knows but that he his kind of uh, um his way of playing of just the physical exertion it's not entirely far-fetched that he gave so much of himself in his music that he didn't have his body didn't have enough left over to regenerate and heal itself that that kind of movement of wanting to heal others through music took something from him and so thinking about improvisation as a gift in that sense was the the heart of that chapter and thinking of it especially as embodied practice and not just cerebral Um, How do I navigate changes, but how do I really create something? um, As Bataille says of Hegel, without reserve, kind of give without reserve. I don't think that was a complete sentence. How do I create that, give without reserve, and kind of what does that, how does that help us to rethink improvisation and to rethink the legacy of so-called free improvisation?
1: Great um and so where where does soundworks end then so where where do you where do you finish the the book?
2: I finished the book with Jane Cortez um, who this is relevant because of who ends up in her band She at one point in her life was married to Ornette Coleman they divorced they had a child they divorced that's the end of that chapter Cortez stays active in creating community and creating, independent media and um, collaborating with people. She collaborates with Ama Atta Aidu, the great Ghanaian poet and novelist and playwright. Um, and she builds a band. And the band is basically the same personnel as was in Ornette Coleman's prime time. And so there's the um, his, his 80s ensemble. And so I wanted to end with her because for a few reasons. One, I just think it's interesting that this is such an old jazz thing to do. Wayne Shorter recorded um, a, recorded at least one album with the members of the John Coltrane Quartet. Um, and that was just a thing that people did. It's like, oh, okay, you have this great band. Well, I'm gonna record with those musicians and see what they do with me. And to think of her as not just Ornette Coleman's wife, but his equal in music who's recording very different things with the members of his band, where they have to respond to her differently than they do to him. I just, I, I couldn't pass that up. But I also just really adore Jane Cortez's poetry, um, the way, and the way that she keeps alive a certain Black art spirit, that Black art spirit of independence, um, of creating independent media, and of creating and holding together the band as a form Um, that can become a space through which I think in her case, if not in every case, the band Keeping Together the Fire spreaders becomes a model for and later a substitute for the forms of radical alternative political organizing that she also continued to be a part of. And so that's one reason I wanted to end with her as yet another person who comes of age in the Black arts era, and then in her case, if anything, becomes much more radical. Um, her, some, of her early, some of her early work is marked by some things that are just really problematic and homophobic. and But by the end of her career, all of that is gone. And it's, it's just a vision of a really expansive and bracing vision of the world. And I think I wanted to say um, implicitly, we don't have to look for the music to the music on its own in an unmediated way to be resisting the power structure. We have, in the case of Cortez, the music is radical and is challenging to us. It's rooted in the blues, kind of explicitly, but then the 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 words of the poems themselves are really uh, a challenge to us and a challenge to us to to do. And to do and to be better. The very last line of the book is, there it is, taken from Jane Cortez's poem. There it is. That poem begins with her saying, my friends, it doesn't matter if you're a leftist or a rightist, a shithead or a snake. And kind of going from there. And it's taking the idea of we need a Black United Front from the 60s and moving it to this place where you can you can talk whatever talk you want to, but understand that unless you are part of the power structure, you are about to be its victim. And so what are we going to do? And to kind of want to say that as critics... Um, We, it's a call for myself. I think all criticism is first self-criticism. And so for me, Cortez was the person who kind of kept me in line. If I wanted to go off into these flights of abstraction and, and get really excited about ideas, um, thinking about Cortez reminded me that, you know, this is also a tradition of being responsible to ordinary people. I want this to be a book that would be usable for people who who are organizing who understand themselves to be in the struggle i can't indulge my own desires or i don't want to indulge my own desires maybe to go into these flights of abstraction when i think that um or just beautiful well-turned but not always meaningful phrases, and so it's a tribute to what what I got and get from Cortez's work that I ended the book with her, the person who had really I, I, I mean, it's my fault. The places where I go astray, where it is too abstract, that's all in me. But thinking about her and her work really grounded me and grounded the thinking in the book. and so it seemed fitting to give her the last the last listen and the last word. That's that. That's
1: really fantastic, and and such a striking finish when when you get to it. Um, well, Anthony, this has been just wonderful, and and we've taken up so much of your time already. So thank you. But uh, as a last question, we I, I have to ask here: um, what what are you working on now? If you
2: can give us even the the shortest preview. Yeah, it's well. Thanks again for having me. And the new project is a little bit in flux, but it is as sound moved backwards from freedom time to think about the, um, the, the era of the civil rights movement because it, the song works ended up being more US-centered than I had initially envisioned it. The work I'm trying to start now is also a project of, of Black poetics that specifically is and intentionally looking global and thinking about how people imagine drawing on C.C. Jaji's work again, small case P, Pan-Africanism, how they imagine forms of transnational Black solidarity, if not Black unity, after the fall of Soviet communism and after the fall of apartheid in South Africa. Um, South Africa had been such And Southern Africa, more generally, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Angola, um, Botswana, had been such a rallying point for Black thinkers across the world, as had, I think, places like Tanzania and Jamaica and especially Grenada. And so as those possibilities seem to go away. As the kind of possibilities of black sovereignty, of black of African socialism seem no longer available. Nonetheless, people do organize and arrange their lives aesthetically and otherwise in ways that see or at least seek one another. And I'm trying to work work that out. For a while, I thought that what I was doing was really going to be grounded in the lyric. And I think that for me, the problem with the term lyric, as much as I like the idea of lyricism and lyricism as a kind of encounter with an amplification of the everyday, I'm not sure that that's going to work for me as well as something like Poetics will in order to think about um, Lenton Kwesi Johnson as part of the rebel generation in London and then Lillian Allen and Dionne Brand in Toronto and Lutz Baruka and come out Brathwaite in Kingston, and so on. Um, I'm still putting together my who are the people I want to read for Southern Africa. People like Dennis Brutus are are certainly part of that conversation for me. Um, and also wanting to think about things like techno coming out of Detroit, and house music out of Chicago, and the kind of queer communities. And I don't want to say sub-communities, but there's a little bit of a, there's some tension between as the AIDS crisis unfolds, that I think is as important as the fall of Soviet communism and South African apartheid and really thinking about the possibilities of unity. So those are the big coordinates of what I'm trying to think my way towards and make, uh, I hope, a coherent book out of.
1: Well, I, I can't. Can't wait to have you back on, on the podcast then. Well, um, thank you. Thank you again, Anthony. This has been wonderful. Really appreciate you you taking the time.
2: Thanks again. It was a pleasure.
0: Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in.